It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. listener feedback on the squirrel hunt taking off time from work for sports and deep dives on israel and hamas two how the gop arrived at house speaker mike johnson a conversation with congressman alex mooney three your best bets of the week with the bear including the world series it's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up and welcome to the weekend. Welcome to Friday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on YouTube and follow me on X at Will Kane. I've heard from all of you. You have a lot to say about sacrifices made for your fandom of sports, about hunting squirrels, about learning deeply about the history of the Middle East. We'll walk through that and then get you to Bears Best Bets and the process behind eliminating four different House speakers before arriving at Congressman Mike Johnson. Story number one. Fenton Groff emails in from Ventnor City, New Jersey. Hey, Will, another tremendous podcast. You have a gift for storytelling. However, I would not eat barbecue squirrel even after 10 days strung out on Captain Pollard's ill-fated whaler, the Essex. The squirrels here in southern New Jersey will jump right in your car window if you have food. By the way, Fenton, love stories about stranded and ill-fated whaling vessels, including the Essex. I go deep dive rabbit hole on that once every nine months. I love the story of the whaler stranded out in the tiny islands out in the Pacific and how they survive. I'm always drawn to shipwrecked and stranded stories. I can't tell you what the allure is. It's like not just the edge of survival, because to me, it's different than being stranded in the mountains. There's something so lonely and mysterious about either floating on that vast Pacific Ocean or being stranded on some tiny island and scratching out survival, drawn to stories like the Essex. Fenton continues, believe it or not, check it out. Southern New Jersey is home of the daunted Jersey Devil. He still haunts the Pine Barrens here to this day. I know you can fit like seven New Jerseys inside of the Republic of Texas, but southern New Jersey is home of the rarest form of pygmy pines in the world. These pines average nine foot high and stretch as far as the eye can see in Wharton State Forest, which statistically is larger than Yosemite National Park. And yes, here in southern New Jersey and just 20 miles northwest of Atlantic City. Of course, Fenton, I know about the Pine Barrens. I watched The Sopranos. Fenton goes on. I mention it because we have a huge area where locals fish, hunt, and go four-wheeling. I used camp and fish in this area, and I remember the same story you told, getting my Jeep Comanche 4x4 stuck. Awesome Jeep Comanche. I needed three trucks and a tow winch to get me out. 
My truck was stuck so badly that while we were pulling it out, the vehicle moved vertically before horizontally. Been there. Awesome. The takeaway for me was it's about spending time with the boys, getting dirty, muddy, and flirting with disaster. We didn't catch any fish or game, but my friend had some deer jerky, which was awesome. I'm so happy for your Rangers. I'll be rooting for them tonight. Big game seven. My Phillies are losing right now in game six, but I cannot see them winning two in Philly. He's talking about the Diamondbacks. Of course, since that time, we know that the Rangers won game seven and the Phillies lost game seven. So sadly, Fenton will not be able to look forward to a Rangers versus Phillies World Series. God bless and keep up the great podcasts. Thank you so much, Mr. Fenton Groff. Matthew Raymond emails in, Will, it was fun to hear your accent become more pronounced during the recap on the Squirrel Camp adventure. Lawyer Will took a backseat to Country Will for that segment. It was a fun listen, and those outdoor adventures are always worth it. Respectfully, Matt, Fairbanks, Alaska. I dare say, Matt, you probably know something about the outdoors up there in Alaska. And I think that my accent is very malleable. Once I'm back home for a while, and by the way, I challenge South Carolina, I challenge Georgia, the East Texas accent, as thick as it gets. Not as refined and syrupy as South Carolina, but as strong as any in the nation. And I was surrounded by East Texans, and I think I adopted it very easily. And this is from someone under the name Polaris on Instagram. Have another drink. For somebody who shoots a tiny animal who is a danger to no one and laughs about it, there's something wrong with this person. Why do I think of the war in the Mideast? Well, Polaris, if you draw a parallel between me shooting squirrels and war in the Mideast, I don't know that we're ever going to find a middle ground to meet. I'm not sure. There was some negative feedback to the idea of hunting squirrels, primarily on Instagram. And I don't know if that's because there's a general aversion to hunting per se, or if it's an aversion to hunting the tiny squirrel. But the squirrel in the woods is not the squirrel in your backyard. I've made a joke several times on that squirrel hunt that why don't we just stay home with BB guns and shoot squirrels off my fence line as they run around my backyard. I'd see more, I'd harvest more than I will in the woods of East Texas. But look, hunting is something that I think at this point in my life am comfortable saying is you do not get it unless you are an active participant in hunting. People that say, oh, the deer doesn't, you know, have a gun. Give the deer a gun. Give the bear a gun. And let's make it an even fight. A, don't understand the nature of man and our food chain. You can gussy it up. You can dress it up in feedlots and slaughterhouses and frozen prepackaging in a grocery store. But you're doing the same thing, arguably more inhumanely than going out into the wild and finding an animal who is armed with all of his wits, not in a stockyard, chock full of hormones, led into a mass slaughter. And I have no problem with that because as the highest animal on the food chain pyramid, it is part of our nature, like every other animal's nature, to survive. And by going out into the wild and arming the game 
with the full arsenal of their senses and ability to survive, I would suggest is the truest of humane efforts to source your protein. I mean, a wild squirrel is not the same thing as a backyard squirrel. They're hard. I saw seven. We got one. One does not feed one person, much less a camp full of dudes. It's not easy. No hunting really is unless you're high-fenced and fed. And then you could argue that's not hunting. That's shooting. I'm talking about hunting. And unless you do that, like guns, unless you understand guns, I hate making this argument because it's an ad hominem argument, but I don't think you have a position to opinionate on guns. Quickly on guns. There was a horrific mass shooting in Maine. It looks like 18 dead by a shooter that went to two different locations and injured something like 30 while killing 18. And there will immediately be, there already has been calls from President Joe Biden to institute an assault weapon ban. Now, I'm not going to have time to do it here today. But what I would offer you up is to go back into the archives of the Will Cain podcast. In the same way that we've done a deep dive on Israel and Hamas, we have taken the time to discuss and debate great education about guns. What is or what is not definable about a quote unquote assault weapon? What would various incremental changes like magazine limits actually accomplish may 27th the root of mass shootings how to fix our culture it's on youtube it's in the archives of the will kane podcast i promise you i think you will find it worthwhile back to your emails hey will being a 50 plus year pittsburgh pirates fan i would without hesitation take time off of work to see my Buckos play if they ever return to the World Series. I would expect no less from you. Go Texas Rangers. Love listening to your insights and life stories. That's from Ezra Geist. This is in response to whether or not I should take off work to enjoy the Texas Rangers on Friday night and Saturday night, just a few short hours before Fox and Friends. Over on X, you guys have answered that question with the following. Christine, well, you really can't call in sick because they're going to know that you're not sick, but maybe Brian Kilmeade could fill in you for one of those days. Brian probably works enough. Angie Riley, yes, Will, we forgive you. Take the boys and enjoy. Regina Strawn, it's okay. Life is too short. Joseph Labides says, Will, you can do both work and be at the game. Fox has always done right with the Super Bowl with cross promotion. Let Abby handle it from Arizona. Kennebrew, I say you host from your home in Allen, Texas. John Cannon, nope. Suck it up, buttercup. And then David the Veteran says, it's never too late to be a man and stay up and do the sports and still make it to work on time. You should try being a soldier sometime. It'll be okay. You're young. In the end, David the Vet, not just because you've challenged my masculinity, but because... I do eventually have to show up to work. I am going to pull the all-nighter, both Friday and Saturday night. I mean, not an all-nighter. Into the game, to the call time for Fox and Friends. 
I'm going to put two nights together of roughly four to five hours of sleep. And then Mike Manugian says, I have to challenge one detail of the number of championships you've had throughout your lifetime. The Dallas Stars won the Stanley Cup in 1999 and have had four more appearances. You're right. I stand corrected. And I should never have forgotten the Dallas Stars, who have provided great amount of enjoyment to my three Rangers World Series, three Dallas Cowboys Super Bowls, two Texas Longhorns National Championship appearances, and two Dallas Mavericks NBA Championship appearances. I should have always remembered as well the Dallas Stars. And then Aaron Mays. You have been on fire lately with the podcasts. I've been listening for close to a year now, recommended by my father, and I love the balance of culture, politics, and sports. But since the breakout in Israel... You have moved to the next level. The Cliff's Notes version of the history of Israel and the Middle East has been enlightening to say the least. I look forward to the mornings I can tune in on my way to work and feel like I have a slightly better understanding of what is happening. I would love to dive deeper, but I'm not sure where to look or who to trust. It would be great if you would recommend some trusted books or historians that us curious listeners could look into. Thank you and keep up the great work. Your neighbor to the Northeast, Arkansas. Aaron Maines. Well, Aaron, I've mentioned it several times when we've done the deep dive on part one and part two of the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But Daryl Cooper, under the handle Martyr Maid, has a podcast called Fear and Loathing in New Jerusalem. I've had several people, friends, text me and email me appreciating our history deep dives on this issue and who've already started to look into Fear and Loathing in New Jerusalem. It is incredible. I've said it. I've tried to give it plenty of credit. I've also told you that there are some that will scream anti-Semite and that there are others who will scream Zionist. This is the case when you want to truly understand an issue. You've got to put aside those that would scream to deprive you of understanding. As you'll see as we arrive at part three of our history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, understanding will not always provide you a clean, simple, or satisfactory conclusion, but it will help you understand how you arrived at that conclusion. And I think Daryl Cooper does a great job. If you have the time, make sure you save a couple of hours every week for the Will Kane podcast. But if you have the time to give something 30 hours, Cooper on his Substack, the Modern Made Substack, also has a list of books out that he's read in support of his 30-hour podcast series. You have to pay for that Substack. I believe it's $5 a month, but you will find there a list, a long list of books that will supplement whatever it is you hear here on the Will Cain podcast, there on the Modern Made podcast, as you want to learn more about the Middle East in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We'll be right back with more of the Will Cain podcast. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Story number two. What a week in Congress. Congressman Jamal Bowman has pled guilty to intentionally pulling a fire alarm. If you'll remember, he told you it was a panic. It was accident in order to disrupt a vote on the House floor. Now more extended videos come out. He walks up to the door. 
And he pulls down two signs that say, if you pull the fire alarm, wait 30 seconds, the alarm will go off. Or if you push the door, wait 30 seconds, the alarm will go off. He knew full well what he was doing. He wasn't panicked. He wasn't rushing. He wasn't neglecting to give it full attention. Oh, it had his full attention. Bowman takes those signs off, throws them down on the ground, and then calmly walks over and pulls the fire alarm. Here's my big takeaway. And in some ways, some of you may go, yeah, something we already knew, Will. Bowman looked straight into your face and pure lied. He lied to you. Oh, it was such an accident. Watch the video. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a panic move. Whatever motivated him to disrupt the vote, whatever was his intention, what I'm focused on is his intention of lying. When someone looks you directly in the eyes, this is how I feel about this, and lies to you, I just feel like there's no greater act of disrespect. I think so little of you, either your intellect or your worthiness, that I won't even attempt to approximate the truth. I will fabricate something because you, Rube, will buy my lie or you're not worthy of the truth. Meanwhile, Republicans in the House have gone through a process with four separate nominees after replacing Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. They eventually land at Congressman Mike Johnson. Now, Speaker Mike Johnson. I had Congressman Alex Mooney of West Virginia right here on the program to talk about central bank digital currencies, the movement, the push across the globe, away from cash towards a digital currency monitored and controlled and regulated by a central bank. What are the risks? What is the fate of money and our future, plus the process of arriving at a House speaker. Here is Congressman Alex Mooney. Congressman Alex Mooney of West Virginia, so great to have you here on the Will Kane podcast. You know, I want to start our conversation today with something that I think Americans have become at least conversationally familiar, but probably not in full conception, and that is central bank digital currencies. The yeah. movement, not just towards a digital currency, but one that is administered and regulated and controlled by the United States government. And you've pushed back. You've pushed back on CBDCs. Tell us about that fight against digital currency. Well, Congress has never authorized President Biden to create this this Internet digital currency. Uh, you know, those exist in the private market and people are free to do that. But it's not a rule of Congress. What the government should do is actually back the U.S. dollar with something like gold. I actually have a bill to go back to the gold standard. But we've uh, the federal government in the 1970s under Nixon detached our dollar from anything solid like gold or silver or anything. And it's just full faith and credit United States of America. So now you have digital currency, which is basically the same thing. Full faith and credit of the digital currency. No different than the dollar. So if if my colleagues in Congress and, and the president were serious about making the dollar the main currency, they could retie it to the gold. But they refuse to do that. You know, and they play all sorts of games with the U.S. dollar, with the interest rates and spending and infusion of cash and 33 trillion debt we're borrowing like crazy. Our government has been very irresponsible with the U.S. dollar, which has frankly created, a, I think, a very strong market for the digital currency. People view that as more reliable, more trustworthy, more free of regulations, more free of government control and, uh, and, and spying, frankly. So the government sees competition very successful competition in the private market. And of course, they want to shut it down or co-opt it. That's what this is all about. And I have a legislation to stop them from doing that. 
So, you know, when it comes to the gold standard, first of all, I don't think you're going to find a great amount of disagreement. I think there's many interesting conversations to have. But, you know, something that has stood the test of time over thousands of years as a human store of value like gold, it's a way to reestablish real value instead of just the printing press of the federal government. But I don't know. Not only do I feel like the government, your colleagues have moved beyond the gold standard, but in many ways, the American public has as well. Before we move back to CBDCs, I mean, is there any real appetite? Is that a winnable fight for you to reestablish the gold standard? Well, that's what my bill does. It doesn't, but it doesn't have to be the gold standard. I'm putting up the the, the mark of what really is the ideal, but. Uh, I've talked with other congressmen about it. We could go to a, some sort of a basket of commodities, gold, silver, other metals. It doesn't have to be just gold, but tie it to something that is stable and that stops the games from being played where the dollar is is right. uh, is just traded and infused and, and made up and borrowed against. So it doesn't have to be the gold per se. I set that as, as the ultimate standard that we should reach for. And remember, look, President Reagan was for it. Uh, Ronald Reagan was for it. Uh, President Trump, when he ran for office, supported it. Uh, Jack Kemp was the last congressman before me to put the bill in, in the late 80s. So I think it is still uh, something worth striving for. And look, in in my business, you never know. You put legislation in, you fight for Mm -hmm. it. It's got a lot of support. Sometimes these things surprise you and pass. Uh, But but yeah, there's other options as well. Well, you use the term full faith and credit of the United States government. That's what backs the, the United States dollar. And, and at right. this point, I think there's a lot of doubt. You know, if, if not doubt about the, 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 the value or the, the validity of the United States economy, about the ability of the United States government through the Fed to manage the United States economy, that, that, that doesn't inspire full faith and credit. So we, we've sort of divorced ourselves. We understand that the dollar, that's what it represents. It re- represents the U.S. economy or the U.S. government, our promises, our faith. What's the great leap forward with a digital version? Like for anyone listening, first of all, most of us have kind of moved to cashless. And I know you reference private digital currencies like Bitcoin, but I just want to talk about it from a practical standpoint from someone listening. Like most of us are pretty cashless, I think, for most of our transactions. We're using credit cards. We're using digital um, debit cards when we check out. A lot of people aren't even taking cash these days, which I think is a problem. But yeah, a lot of stores won't take your cash, to your point. Right. So what's the big leap forward with it? It seems like if we're going to move cashless and we're already trading off the dollar, which is the full faith and credit of the United States, what's the great leap forward for the full faith and credit of the United States government behind a digital currency instead of a paper currency? Well, I think I think the, the fear of the federal government doing it is one they'll they'll play the same games they play with the U.S. dollar and you know infuse more more of it into the economy and trade it and borrow it and generally just just mess it up and not to mention the the security we did pass legislation uh, the anti surveillance act to prevent them from doing a digital currency but it's about control and, and also just you know the government watching you they they will see every trade if they control the digital currency and, and you are using the government federal government digital currency they're going to know everything you do did you buy a gun for example do you want the federal government knowing if you bought a gun i sure don't most americans do not uh, do you want the federal government knowing you know what your transactions are in general no well, Congressman, is that a zero to 100 scale of acceleration? What I mean by that is 
the the mechanism of the central bank digital currency and allowing the government to monitor our transactions right. how different is that from where we live today and i'm not endorsing where we live today but i'm right. just trying to diagnose it like if if you buy a gun through a credit card company that is regulated doesn't the government in to some extent have the ability to track my my cell phone whether or not i'm around the capitol on january 6th or my gun purchases I just, I, you know, outside of cash, gun, guns are different because many of those are, are, are tracked and regulated anyway on purchases. But, but unless I'm using cash, doesn't the government have access to all of that data anyway without a central bank digital currency? Well, if it's a private credit card company, uh, they're not supposed to keep that data. Uh, there's a question whether or not they do, and I don't know to the extent. I'm not sure everyone, anyone really knows the extent to which the government has data on these private And to the extent to which those banks are complicit with the federal right. government in right. willingly giving over that information. Right. Yeah, I mean, we, we have the, the, uh, the crime, the, the Anti-Terrorist Act, where any transaction over $10,000 is supposed to be cleared through the Department of Homeland Security, and banks spend a lot of time complying with that number, which is a lot lower due to interest rates. I mean, it should be 60000 if it was even uh, tied to the interest rates when that was first passed. But banks spend a lot of time, uh, you know, running that by the federal government. So that that is run by them. Again, they're not supposed to keep track of it. But, you know, I don't don't think people have confidence that they're not keeping track of it somewhere. Um, There's been a lot of, frankly, abuses from the CIA and FBI uh, in this country uh, towards people who they don't agree with their politics. So uh, they do have a lot of access to information. That's true. But that's a problem. That's not a good thing. That's something, obviously, that I think Americans uh, want to resist and, and not be not continue. And I think it's frankly one of the reasons they went to the central bank digital currency on the private market so they could have those right. uh, have that have that confidentiality and, and be able to use it you know anywhere in the world essentially. And if we move to a CBDC, is the argument that it just gets easier for the government yeah. to track or that it's an yeah. endorsement of government tracking? Right. Yes, absolutely. They they uh, I don't think there's any way to stop them from tracking. They have to because they're 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 overseeing the transaction. There, there's no cash involved. You know, you mentioned cash. There's no cash involved. There's no private company involved that may or may not protect your privacy. At least there's a chance with a private company, they may protect your privacy to some capacity. But if the federal government's doing it, they have it all instantly, instantly. And you know, the wokeism in the government now, even if you're transacting in, in you know, energy, oil and gas and coal, not just Second Amendment, but other things, I mean, who knows? I mean, uh, what what they are going to try to use it for, and uh, it just it's just and it's also just not been authorized. It's not the role of federal government. This is something that's that is is private. You know, right. it's it's not something they need to be involved with. I just again, I just don't think they like the competition because they can't play the games. Uh, we've seen what they've done with our just just our debt to keep it some you know, thirty three trillion in debt. The full faith and credit of that dollar with that kind of debt is declining. And people are just looking for other options because it's been mismanaged by the federal government. So why in the world would we want to turn over, uh, you know, would anybody want to turn that over to the federal government to manage it? So let's talk about that from a practicality so that we understand. You you, you talk about the government being able to instantaneously track a transaction. So... um, So would that... Would I presume then I'd have an app on my phone? It would be like a federal government monetary app of some kind mm-hmm. instead of using visa or or mastercard for my point of purchase transactions i would just go to my phone app yeah. that is controlled by the federal government and i'd swipe a digital a digital yeah. currency that would deduct from my bank account 
Yeah, I guess that's how it would work. I don't know what other options there would be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and that leads us to what everyone is concerned about, the the movement of the government, not just to track your purchases, but then, you know, um, influence those those purchases and and by extension influence behavior and everybody points to china and there are governments the european union is moving to a they say it's going to be a partner with cash but a central bank digital currency australia is moving that way and of course china sort of leads the way and china has a social credit system which is is is, um partnered up with that digital currency so from what i understand if i jaywalk in china i've broken the law i'm subject to a fine and that fine can almost directly come, or does directly come, right out of my bank account. Uh, so that's one example of influencing my behavior, but they could also do it in any other ways they see me violating government policy. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a whole separate thing. That Once they track it, what are they going to do is the question. You know, there are fines that could come out, the taxes could come out of there. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, what China is doing with this, this social contract and what you know where are you like if you drive an electric car for example which the government may want to promote electric cars maybe you get a bonus which means if you drive a traditional gas car you're getting penalized for that because it's the behavior the government wants to wants to push and you know this like i say the wokeism the the frankly the environmental extremism goes goes well beyond just the issue of second amendment rights it mm-hmm. goes to everything they're going to push i mean could go to even where you shop um you know, I, I, it's 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 scary to think of the that there's what the limits may not be as to what the government will do with the social contract and social engineering on the digital. And that's currency. it. That's the effect of a of a potential effect of yeah. a central bank digital currency on a micro level, on a personal level. Let's go back right. to that macro level where you talked about the debt. Um, yeah. Forgive my ignorance. So when when the Fed prints money, uh, you know, puts more quote-unquote, dollars into the economy. And thus, eventually, at some point, the point at which we've, we've now arrived, inspires inflation. I don't know. T- tell, me, tell me if it... Does the Fed actually fire up a printing press? Does it actually shove more dollars into the economy? Or do they sort of, just like this... Do we, do we already have a central bank digital currency? Do they just put more zeros on the ledger and say, here's how much money is spendable out there? I'm trying to figure out the great leap forward from the macro perspective of where we are now versus what they could do with a central bank digital currency. Yeah, I mean, well, they, don't, they don't actually physically print the dollars. They just create it on the Internet. Right. And, and a lot of it is owed then to other countries. Obviously, they're borrowing from China and other countries that are that are not our allies, frankly. And for now, it's actually a little surprising to me, to be perfectly honest, that other countries still keep buying our debt that is so high and they're, they're paying for it. I thought at some point they might stop. Eventually they will. I mean, eventually the debt on our country could be so great that the interest rates consume all the money coming into our country. If we're not careful, that's that's where we're going. We would default on everything. Uh, but yeah, they, they keep buying our debt. Other countries keep buying it. That's most of it. The games they play, gosh, it's just, it's just so many, how they infuse it and borrow from themselves. I mean, they're doing anything to try to control the economy and infuse cash from time to time. And of course, they adjust the interest rates as well. And it's not hard for, you know, your, your viewers to understand the more money that is invented or, or borrowed and more spending that is done, obviously inflation rates go up. It's, it's right. not hard to figure out when you put more money in the pot, the money that's there is worth less. And that's why we have about 70% interest rate increase since President Biden took office. So for someone who's saved 
$100,000 in retirement, it's now worth 83000 That's not fair. That's just sort of a, it's sort of like legally stealing money from people. And they know what they're doing when they do this. They, they know what they're doing when they infuse money into the economy and borrow more. They know they're devaluing the dollar that you have, that you save, that you live off on. People on fixed incomes are getting hit. Yeah. And they know they're doing that. And, and, and in their mind, it's transfer of wealth. And, and that's what they want. They want to transfer the wealth. But from uh, the poorest to the wealthiest, yeah, exactly. because inflation yeah. hits the poorest. It's an, it's an undemocratic tax. It's a non-voted-on yeah. tax. Yeah. Um, Congressman, I want to ask you about this. You know, at the time you and I are speaking, um, the, the Republicans have nominated Congressman Mike Johnson for, for House Speaker. Uh, he will go for a vote on the House floor. Um, do you expect him to be elected the next Speaker of the House? I actually do. And you've been through, I know, maybe surprising, right? And maybe at this point, we're not going to believe it until we see it. Uh, but I was in the meeting uh, last night that went till 11 p.m. And not one Republican member of the House conference voted against him yesterday. Uh, three, three voted present. All three of them this morning have switched to a yes on him. So at, at the moment, literally every Republican member of Congress supports him. Well, let um, me talk about ask you about why that is. What is different about Mike Johnson? Yeah. Actually, I want to I want to ask you and you don't I know I know that these are your colleagues and I know I feel like so much of what we've witnessed over the last couple of weeks, which is the longest we've gone, I believe, since the 1800s without a House right. speaker. Right. Um, I believe and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. I believe a lot of it is about personality. and It's become personal for so many um, as much as it is ideological. But what, so then what makes Mike Johnson and he got, by the way, President Trump's endorsement. Uh, what makes him different than, say, Tom Emmer? Tom Emmer, who yesterday, as we're talking, did not. He, he, he withdrew after it was clear he right. was not going to become the next House Speaker. Yeah, it, it's all of the above, honestly. It's personal, as you mentioned. It's political. Someone who can make sure we, we maintain the majority and expand the majority. You've got to go out there and make sure you can get your folks reelected. And policy, a conservative. And that's what that's the mix you're looking for. There are I'm a conservative Republican. I'm in the Freedom Caucus. There are some moderate Republicans who sadly didn't want Jim Jordan. I was a huge fan of Jim Jordan. I think Jim Jordan would have been a great speaker. I backed Jim Jordan 100 percent. But 20 or 25 folks, I just didn't want didn't want him. And I think it was more because he was viewed as too conservative for them. And that's sad. I disagree was that, with that completely. was that an issue of policy? Yeah. Was it an issue of ideology or was it sort yeah. of? Back to the personal side, there's clearly a lot of people that were upset with the move from yeah. Congressman Matt Gates, and that would have been seen as giving him a yeah. victory if Jim Jordan became House Speaker, and they didn't want to give that victory. I'm asking you this, and they yeah, wanted sure. to deny that victory yeah. to Congressman Gates. Well, no, it, well, I'll just tell you what people said. So, so when Jim Jordan got up and he'd been voted no longer to be our nominee, so he was leaving, he said everyone who voted against me, the 25 people who voted against him, kept telling him that it was not personal. Although Jim Jordan said it sure feels personal when, they, when they're not voting for you. Right. So, uh, but I take people at the word. It wasn't personal. I think he's viewed rightly as a conservative firebrand who's a fighter, uh, you know, much like Trump. And there are some who didn't want that. They didn't want the Speaker of the House to be that out front as a conservative fighter. Now, I vehemently disagree with that. I'm just telling you what, they, what I, what sure. I saw right. from them. But it wasn't personal. Everybody likes Jim Jordan. I don't know one person who hasn't personally very much admire and like Jim Jordan. He's super popular in this country, probably the most popular Republican member of Congress, not even a close second, in my opinion, because what he's done as judiciary chairman, being a strong leader for many years in Congress. But I think it was partially 
uh, that, that he was in some, in some people's minds too conservative. And also, uh, you know, Steve, Steve Scalise didn't get it either. So McCarthy was removed right. by eight people. Then Steve Scalise, he actually withdrew. So we never did see a floor vote on that. Right. But he withdrew because he perceived he didn't have the support. So I think it's true that some people may have also felt, well, now we're going to, you know, put in this guy who's really conservative when they didn't give us the guys we wanted. So it was a little bit of that back and forth. And now we're on our fifth try. So yeah, now we're on our fifth try. So I think it's gone back Scalise, and forth enough now. Scalise, yeah. Jordan, yeah. Immer. Uh, am I right now? Yeah. Johnson yeah. Is, is the next. If you, if you count McCarthy, who was removed. Yeah. McCarthy, Scalise, Jordan, Emmer. McCarthy, Scalise, Jordan, Emmer. So we're on five. I think there's been enough back and forth that everyone said, okay. Now, now I'll tell you, Mike Johnson, I know him. You know, he was elected two years after me. He used to run the Republican study committee. He's a conservative man. So on the policy, when it comes to spending and getting like things we were talking about, getting spending under control and reining in the government that wants to control us and, and spy on us and, and uh, play games with the economy, Mike Johnson's conservative. He's as conservative as Jim Jordan. He, he is. I, I don't think there's a much difference on policy between Mike Johnson, Jim Jordan, me, Donald Trump, and he's a conservative man. So, and most, look, most Republican members of Congress are conservative. When Mike Johnson ran the Republican Study Committee, uh, that's the majority of Congress is in that. Like 150 members out of 220 are in the Republican Study Committee, which is a conservative group. And so we wanted a conservative, and folks who are less conservative, I think, felt he was I don't know, low-key enough, if we, if you, you know, last, lack of a better word, not, not as abrasive, not as out front as a Jim Jordan, and thought, well, you know, he's, he's fine. So all the New York Republicans voted for him, for example. Uh, the others who didn't vote for Jim Jordan on the House floor all voted for him. And I hmm. think also, like you said, it's the fifth time, right? So we can keep doing this. We've gone through four. Are we going to go we're gonna go through four more? And then on November 17th, we have a government shutdown because we haven't passed our spending bills like we should have. So we can't keep doing this. We all look, we're big boys and girls. We understand we can't keep doing this. We had to pick someone. So that that that's going to be my last question for you is like if 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 Congressman Johnson was sort of the right guy, it seems to be the right guy to get everybody's votes. Why isn't he the first guy that was that was nominated? But from what I hear, he's the right guy. But it also the process required that both sides, the very conservative and the moderate Republicans, sort of try to get their maximalist position um, before coming to this compromise? Is that a fair characterization before finding this Goldilocks zone? Take that and combine it with exhaustion and the necessity of a House speaker? Yeah, yeah we had to find someone that no one had a personal or political objection to, who was, you know, likable and conservative. And I, I would say, like, I guess for, you know, when McCarthy was removed, uh, which I did not support, of course, I did not support that move, but it happened. Then the next person you look at is a majority leader. If you're sort of going in line in order, you have a majority leader who's elected as the number two guy, the head of the, the, head of the majority party. So, so you would look to Steve Scalise. Most of, of the supporters of McCarthy and the establishment, if you will, would look to Steve Scalise next. He, he withdrew. So Jim Jordan, you know, got the votes in conference. But they wouldn't vote for him on the floor. So you went to the next person in line, which was Tom Emmer, who's the whip. And he withdrew yesterday. So you went through all three leaders. McCarthy, uh, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Tom Emmer. You went through everyone in leadership. They're out. So at this point, you had to go to someone not in leadership, not in those leadership positions. So it was jump ball. I was actually here when this happened, uh, gosh, eight years ago, when uh, John Boehner stepped down as Speaker of the House. I was in the room. Boehner resigned, said he was going to resign. McCarthy was supposed to 
shortly after become speaker. He withdrew, if you may recall, he withdrew as a speaker candidate. And we were in the same position. And we all looked around like, who's going to jump in there now? And we didn't really have a candidate. Finally, we also looked at Paul Ryan, who had been the vice presidential nominee. And everyone loved Paul Ryan. I mean, what's not to love about Paul Ryan? He's a great man, good conservative, uh, was very politically savvy. And, but he didn't want to do it. So he said no. And we spent a couple of weeks not having a speaker candidate. And then Paul Ryan finally said, yeah, I'll, go, I'll do it. And we, we put him in there. So we had someone to look at. I mean, but there wasn't a, there wasn't a Paul Ryan sitting around when McCarthy was, was removed as speaker. There wasn't someone who we all could automatically go to as sort of a natural person. Mm-hmm. We had to go through and look at eight people ran, different people kept running. And look, it, it's, it's, it's a democratic process. Yeah, I don't election. think it's, yeah. yeah. I don't think it's as embarrassing as everyone wants to believe. No, and hopefully, no. hopefully it's produced a, a we'll see, we'll find out with the House, with the floor vote. But hopefully it's produced a House speaker that can not only bring the Republican uh, caucus together and govern, uh, but, but in a more healthy, representative way of the American people. Congressman Mooney, thanks for talking about central bank digital currencies and the House speaker well, vote with us today. I appreciate your time. Anytime. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Congressman Alex Mooney. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. And now, story number three. Chris Felica is the bear. Every week he publishes a podcast, Bears Bets, Bears Best Bets at Fox Sports Podcasts, taking you through some of your best gambling picks on sports for the weekend. I had Bear here on the Will Kane podcast to talk not only about college and professional football, but... Since it's the World Series, who does he pick? The Arizona Diamondbacks or the Texas Rangers? Here is the Bear. And we're back this week with the host of Bear Bets at Fox Sports Podcast, Chris Felica. Great to see you again, except that right before we went on air, I asked you about the World Series. And um, you said, look, anything could happen. That's kind of a sports cop-out, but you, you weren't copping out. You, you literally meant, you know, in a way, I guess you're saying Diamondback sweep, Rangers sweep, you know, go seven. Literally, there's, it's hard to put down. But if, if I pressed you, you're taking Arizona? I would take Arizona if you pressed me, because I think what we've seen in the playoffs so far is that it's a completely random situation where, I mean, this, this Arizona team needed the Cubs to lose – 15 to 22 down the stretch in order to make the play. They needed a, a dropped fly ball basically for the Cubs to lose a game that ultimately wound up being the difference. Cubs lost four extra inning games in the final month of the year that uh, if they win any one of those, Arizona's not even here. So you're Milwaukee, making the argument. No, Milwaukee, had, Milwaukee had them down 3 nothing twice, and then they went out and they – steamroll the Dodgers and they were down 3-2 right. and won twice in Philly. I, I think they do have the, the the biggest advantage I think they do have, however. I know the I know that the uh, Montgomery's pitch great for the Rangers and I know Valdi has been fantastic in the playoff, but I do think that the, the 1-2 of Gallon and Merrill Kelly ultimately could be the difference and that I think their starting rotation might be a little bit deeper. If you look at Brandon Fott, he kind of was like a an under-the-radar kind of like dark horse MVP of that series with the way uh, last night, the way his balls were moving and, and games. He, he he didn't have a great rookie season, but I think in the postseason, the way he's pitched has really given them uh, an added starter that they might have needed. So, hey, look, I'm, so, I'm, 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 the price is just a little too high. I, I could not lay 175 or whatever with, with the Rangers. I, right. I think I would just have to take the underdog here. Yeah, Rangers are favored. Um 
I would have two responses. When it comes to actual baseball analysis, I think you, Brandon Fott is exactly where I would focus. Um, I'm I'm really comfortable with the Rangers starting pitchers, the top two against the the Diamondbacks top two. I'm a Rangers fan, of course. Um, it's that third, and I have no idea what I get from Max Scherzer. No idea. In fact, if I have to pick what I get from Max Scherzer, it's not going to be great. Versus, um, it's been really good from Fott. But the, the better non-baseball analysis that you made is actually the one that's hardest for me to ignore. Like, when I was watching last night Phillies and, and Diamondbacks, I was rooting for the Diamondbacks because I just thought I, I think they're the easier team to beat than, than the Phillies for, as a Rangers fan. But what gives me pause is, well, but the Diamondbacks weren't supposed to be in the playoffs, weren't supposed to beat the Brewers, weren't supposed to beat the Dodgers, weren't supposed to beat the Phillies. So what's it matter if the Rangers are the better team? The Diamondbacks keep doing what they're not supposed to do. So that non-baseball analysis actually scares me for the World Series. It's so funny you say that because I had uh, World Series futures on the on the Braves and the Dodgers, and I, here I was thinking, oh, this is great. I, it, the, 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 the Diamondbacks beat Milwaukee. I didn't want to have to face uh, Burns and Peralta. Those are good, but Arizona coming in now, Dodgers will beat the Diamondbacks, and didn't happen. So it, it reminds me a little bit, too. Remember the Nationals a few years ago where they were it's just an underdog in all these series despite having that great rotation, and they just steamroll through everybody, too. So it, some, sometimes that's what – when baseball expanded the postseason, they opened themselves up to kind of this uh, high-variance, underdog-type deal with, with best-of-three series, best-of-five series, get letting six teams in the playoff now. Uh, and, and, and here we are where you got the, the sixth seed in the National League versus the five seed in the American League. It, it'll be – look, baseball diehards I think are going to watch. I'll watch, of course, and because and, I'm, I'm a baseball purist and, and love the sport. But um, if you're looking for, like, the best teams to win this, like I think a lot of people are, the only you, – you've kind of – the die is cast now. You've gone past the point of no return. Like I'll give you this. I hate the whole playoffs don't represent baseball argument. I, I don't like that. I'm not saying you, you – you, but what it does is it shows – the. I think the value of a team or the way to build a team to win in the playoffs is you need one or two stud pitchers and you need you need one of the best managers quite honestly a guy that knows how to put it together in a shorter series to win a game or two, win an inning or two to put runs on the board. And I think that Bruce Bochy, Bruce what, what, Bochy has Bruce that. Bochy the Texas the Rangers night, have leave, Bruce Bochy. Leaving Evaldi in there the other night, but go, go get him. I, like, right. And, and, and I love seeing a manager like that still have a place in today's game and succeed because we've seen so many of these teams. And look, there's a place for analytics and, and statistical analysis and all in this sport. But there's so many times where, oh, pulled up four four innings up pulled and Bochi there's still a place for that kind of gut instinct baseball been down this road going to take a chance here I, I like I, I'm it's I'm better really, 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 these really two teams yep. these two teams steal bases it's yep. better to have a human being doing something than have this sport run by computers yep. of course it also plays into my favor because my team's <laughs> in the World Series right, I want to ask you about a couple of football games really quickly let's start with college football uh, one for me that has the most outside interest no personal investment it's it remains for me um, the the pac 12 it's it's number 18 Oregon versus number 13 Utah um, you know Oregon Washington a couple weeks ago was um, up there with Texas OU for me as like the best games of the season where the loser I don't think less of. Uh, so, of course, again, my team lost, so I acknowledge my bias and I don't think less of the Horns, at least when they have their starting quarterback. So, um, but Utah's tough. 
And Utah's the higher seed here. Uh, what do you think with Oregon, Utah? Yeah, I'm surprised that this line is six and a half. I, I think, and I'm wondering if that's kind of like maybe the market was kind of hanging on the fact that maybe Keithy would play this week, maybe Cam Rising would play this week, and now that right. uh, Kyle Winningham has basically said no, they're done for the year, they're out. Uh, maybe the market reaction has been like, okay, they, now they're definitely out. And maybe the fact that Utah just pulled the upset at SC, uh, can they come back and, and beat a team like Oregon? But at home, they are a different animal. And yes, we saw the Oregon State defense in Corvallis kind of just manhandle the Utah offense. Oregon's defense is really, really good, but can it travel? We're going to get Bo Nix on the road again. What type of decisions will he make? I think Oregon's the better team. I would absolutely be on board here for taking Utah plus the points. I'm glad you said what you did, though, uh, about Texas and about Oregon, because I came out of both of those games, the Red River game and the Oregon-Washington game, thinking that if those two teams rematched in the Big 12 and the Pac-12 title game, I would really like Texas and I really would like Oregon. Same. And I don't feel that way about Penn State, Ohio State. So, no. I mean, these games, um, I mean, they're just quality teams that that play good football. But it's different. Things have changed for Texas. That's the second game I want to talk to you about. That's Texas-BYU. BYU's not good. Texas is favored by 17.5. But, but... They don't have Quinn Ewers, and they and I don't know how long they won't have Quinn Ewers. I mean, it could be several weeks, and they're starting a guy, Malik Murphy, who, I mean, we just don't know much about Malik. All we know is what we hear from coaches and what we see in, in the orange and white game in the spring. And so I have no idea. I mean, hand the ball off, you know, 40 times in the game. I don't know what happens here, but I, I've, I'm going to tell you as a Texas fan, 17 and a half seems like too much. Does it? See, I feel pretty good about Malik Murphy going in there and playing quarterback. I think they, I think the coaches feel pretty good about it. I think with the running game that they have, BYU is a team they've gone on the road. I mean, they lost by four touchdowns at TCU a couple of weeks ago, gave up over forty points. And if TCU is doing that to you and holding you to, to uh, I think it was forty four eleven, I think actually was the final. I mean, if the TCU defense is able to shut you down like that. Um, I would have to think that Texas coming off that close call last week. Uh, I mean, and there were reasons to I mean to kind of expect that idle week coming off of the Oklahoma loss, going against Dana, who would love to have I mean uh, Houston Stadium filled with Longhorns fans. I mean, I mean, there there was reason to think that that game could be a little bit tricky. But I think I, I think the result of that game, along with now maybe some people doubting, uh, is Texas that good? Can Murphy do the job? Will we see Arch Manning? Which I don't think we will. All I, season, I, 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 you, I, do you think this season we won't see Arch Manning? I, I, I think we might see him just a little bit, um, but I don't think he's going to see any serious uh, game action. I, I think they're going to ride Murphy for the for the real uh, for the for the actual competitive parts of the game, and I think maybe they get Arch's feet wet a little bit at some point if the games get out of reach. But I mean, the blessing for Texas is it happened now at a point in the season where. You, you, even if Quinn's out three or four weeks, um, they they can survive this as long as they get him back uh, by the Big Twelve Championship game. They'll they'll be okay. It's weird too, like there are people out there throwing it that maybe this is the last time we've seen Quinn Ewers. Uh, maybe he'll just sit out the rest of the year. I don't think that's going to happen. I think he will be back probably with three four week stops. Well, here's this will be the most interesting story of the college football offseason if what you predict is true. If Malik Murphy plays well. I mean, as a Texas fan, Texas fan base, everybody's going to always want to see Arch Manning, but you can't keep both those quarterbacks. Right. So one of them will hit the transfer portal, 
And it will be a question of whether or not you, t- you keep the guy who played well in, in place of Quinn Ewers in this scenario, in this hypothetical, or the guy that's the all-world recruit with the famous last name. I don't know what you do. I think it, I think it has to be Murphy, and it's interesting because it has to be Murphy. So you let you let Arch if Murphy, if hit Murphy the portal. Goes, if Murphy goes out and proves over the next month or so, or however long he's playing, that he can be the guy and lives up to the hype with the, the arm that arm strength that he has, I think it's hard to say. No, yeah, you know, we know you went out and did it and proved it against Big Twelve competition, but you know, you know what? But we're we're gonna let Arch, who really hasn't played, and he was a. I I I I think Sark and those guys would just because wow. there's going to be a competition and we're going to go to the spring and we'll see who it is. But but I I would think they would feel really good about. I mean they're they're going to get any quarterback recruit they want. I mean yeah maybe it's not a, an Arch Manning type name recruit, but they'll sign someone great. To, well, I don't to know do. if Arch would transfer. I mean he's the, the whatever's going on with Arch and the Manning family is mm-hmm. different than your typical college football right. player. Very so true. I don't know that he would transfer. But there's only like. I think there's only one. If Arch redshirts this year and successfully, I guess it'd be two years of eligibility difference between mm-hmm. Malik and Arch. So, so, and then Malik could leave early as well. So Arch would have his window still behind Malik, but it's just not the way it's done in college football. You transfer <laughs> ASAP. It's interesting because Quinn Ewers was kind of involved in a little bit of a situation where he left Ohio State and then. Ohio, Ohio State, they had um, a little bit of a shortage. Then they had that uh, Rayola, Dominic Rayola's son, Tim Dylan Rayola, committed to Ohio State, and he was committed for a while. And all these quarterbacks kept, like, we're not going to consider Ohio State now. And then Rayola decommitted, and he wound up going to Georgia. So Ohio State kind of was left naked a little bit because Ewers transferred, which they weren't expecting. They were expecting Rayola to come in and be able to be their guy. He's not there now. They, I think they were kind of thinking Devin Brown could, like, be the right. guy. He's now hurt. And now they're kind of left with McCord, who I think he's – I mean, yeah, he went to Notre Dame and won and made some big throws to Marvin Harrison, but I still don't feel like Ohio State trusts Kyle McCord when push comes to shove. Okay, let's move to pro football. Um, probably the biggest game on everyone's radar uh, would be the Bengals against the Niners. Um, it's Niners minus six and a half. I don't know. Everybody, the roller coaster on Brock Purdy has ridden all the way to the top and yep. all the way to the bottom. And. Um, the Bengals still just kind of kind of getting there. Joe Burrow kind of getting there, but definitely not who they were when they went to the Super Bowl. No, no, and this not. And the Bengals have actually seen some action. This number is down to the five and a half, pretty much across the board now. And it wasn't like Purdy played ter- the first three quarters. He played fine, but he did have a couple of couple of picks late. And obviously, the play right before halftime, Radisson wrestled the ball away from Ward was ultimately the difference in the game. I like the 49ers here. I mean, they're, they're kind of looking in the mirror right now and just uh, questioning, like, the Fred Warner had the quote about needing to win these grimy types of games. And I think that's going to be a challenge to their defense and their the defensive line, the linebacker core, against an offensive line, which, quite frankly, hasn't been really good. Um, Burrow, with a week off, obviously, he's he continues to get healthier. But they still haven't been great. They probably should have lost to Seattle. Seattle, I think, had like six plays inside the 10-yard line in like the final four minutes and couldn't score. Like, I, 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 I'm, like if we were like buy, sell, hold on the Bengals right now, I'd still be holding because I'm not sure right. 
that they're going they're going to break through, and I'm not sure they're the team that they have been in recent in recent years. I think defensively they have some problems, and I think certainly on the offensive line they have some problems. And I think this might be a week where, with a little bit of a public public side being a trendy underdog with the Bengals, it might be a good opportunity to buy low uh, on the 49ers coming again. Uh, look, they've lost consecutive regular season games after winning what 15 straight regular season games, so they're going to lose three in a row. I doubt it. So I, I would. I, you know, normally I like playing an underdog, but I, I'll uh, I'll lay the points here with the Niners. We should start doing that. Buy, sell, hold, or some bit. We're going to start doing a bit, a bit together, Bear. Yeah. Well, let's start right now. Cowboys. Cowboys, Rams, in one of the rare one o'clock windows mm-hmm. for the Cowboys, um, which means I'll be watching them on an airplane. Amazing modern technology that I can do so. <laughs> I st- it, ma- it makes me sad, but it also makes me like, I can't believe I get to watch a football game on an airplane Boy, of my choice, not just the one they give me. I can stream whatever I choose. Um, so, Cowboys. I mean, by the way, Rams, I'm, I don't even know if I can get to hold. Like, I don't, I mean, I know they're not a full on sell, but they're not, they're definitely not a buy in my mind. So maybe they're a low hold. I see your face. Cowboys, I actually don't know on Cowboys. I think it's a hold on, on Cowboys. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hold on the Rams just because the rest of the NFC is so bad. And with, with Cup and Nakua and Stafford, they're capable of scoring points uh, on anybody. But I'm a buy on Dallas. I, I actually played them last week uh, to win the, uh, the the NFC East. I, mean, I think if you look at the – really. If you over look, Philly, yeah, I think if you look at the Eagles' schedule coming up, it's very, very difficult. What, 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 what they have? I mean, and now Hurts is hurt. They got the win over Miami, and you got the game in, in Washington where it's a rivalry game, and who the heck knows what's going to happen? But, but after that, you got Dallas. Go to Kansas City. You got Buffalo. Maybe they get some of their situation scored away by then. You got the Niners. You got Dallas again, and then you got Seattle. Like that is a really difficult stretch for the Eagles. And if Hertz isn't 100%, like this is an opportunity for Dallas to uh, to maybe make up a game or two and maybe go into December either tied or in the lead. And then you never really know what happens. What happens. Obviously, Dallas' schedule tightens up at the end of the uh, gets, gets a little bit tougher at the end of right. the year. But um, I think right now from a betting standpoint, you might be in a situation where you bet Dallas to win the division right now. Uh, they, they become maybe the favorite or co-favorite, and then maybe you can get a, a little bit of price on the Eagles, and maybe you play the Eagles back in December and guarantee your profit. But, but I'm, a, ah, I'm, a, I like I'm, I'm a I'm a buy on Dallas right now. I, I think this is a, a very good team. I think defensively they are really good, and I think um, – Moving forward, it's going to be a question of turning the ball over, and it seems like they've been a little bit more uh, risk averse lately in, in, in eliminating some of these turnovers. So we'll see what uh, uh, McCarthy and Shoddy have planned for that offense. But uh, I'm a believer in Dallas. All right, Chris Felica, the Bear. <laughs> Always fun to talk to you, man. We'll come up with that. We'll come up with that. I don't know if we'll do buy sell hold, but we'll come up with that bit for we'll next week. A little something every week, exactly. Yeah. All right, man. Good to see you. Thank you. Okay, well. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris Felica. Remember, go check out the podcast, Bear Bets, at Fox Sports Podcast. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I will see you again on Monday. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.